Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened. And this week, a bunch of stuff happened. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in our studio by my colleague, Paul Blumenthal. Hello, Arthur. And my other colleague, S.V. Date. Hey, guys. S.V. is a senior White House correspondent, and Paul Blumenthal covers money and politics. And you know what that means. Sometimes crimes. <laughs> and and this week, we had maybe some crimes come to light Quite in possibly. the uh, ongoing political witch hunt of President Donald Trump. And the big news is that his son, for some reason, revealed to the world the colluding emails he shared with someone who'd promised to set up a meeting with uh, someone allegedly from Russia who could provide damaging information on Hillary Clinton last year. Oh, my God. This was huge, wasn't it, SV? This is a big deal. And it's a big deal because the email that he got specifically said this information is coming from the Russian government as part of Russia's assistance to him, his campaign. So it's it they laid it all out there and it, it's almost, you know, more amazing than you could imagine. I mean, this is remarkable that such an email even even exists and oh. the fact that he would put it out there is Let's let's just read the email. It's not long, but it's so ridiculous that it seems like something a bad novelist would make up. Like who you know who isn't good at like uh, nefarious political dialogue. It's from Rob Goldstone, who is this interesting uh, sort of schlubby British ex-tabloid reporter who has a relationship with the Trumps, and he says the Crown Prosecutor of Russia met with his father this morning and in their meeting offered to provide the Trump campaign with official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary. This is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. Wow. Yeah. And then Donald Trump Jr. responded that, uh, I love it. That's what he wrote. If if this is what if you say, what you say I, love I love it. Right. And so, Paul, did he commit a crime? Because some people are saying that he violated an election law. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there are many laws that you could violate here. A lot of them involving election laws. Um, basically, you're not allowed to uh, receive a contribution from a foreign government. You're also not allowed to like provide any help to a foreign government that's trying to help your campaign or a foreign corporation or a foreign person, really. Um, and, you know, here you have him basically saying, I would like to take this meeting to obtain some kind of opposition research created ostensibly for, by the foreign government of Russia against his opponent, Hillary Clinton. And, you know, 
uh, campaign finance law says that, you know, opposition research, the interpretation of the law says, can be a thing of value, which can be a contribution. Oh, really? Thus, this information could be legally a campaign contribution, which would be illegal if it's coming from a foreign source. Now, I was just reading David French, a conservative writer at the National Review, who said, this is a liberal fantasy. If it wasn't like money or some actual sort of asset or resource, you can't call it a contribution. Well, that's just uh, absolutely incorrect. And there are multiple things that make that incorrect. The first of all is the Federal Election Commission in 2004 issued a an opinion on a case stating that Grover Norquist's Americans for Tax Reform, a nonprofit organization in the United States, gave its email and contact list to the George W. Bush re-election campaign in 2004, and that that thing constituted a thing of value. This was not a con- this is not money. This was a thing that they created. A previous opinion by the FEC has also declared that opposition opposition research or information that has been paid for to be created can be a thing of value and would be a contribution. So David French is 100% wrong. There's also... It sounds like you might have studied this. There's also the the fact that we're talking... Campaign finance laws about a foreign government or a foreign corporation or a foreign person are completely different than campaign finance laws for something that Grover Norquist did or something that a U.S. citizen did or anything around a, a normal... campaign contribution because the reasoning, the constitutional reasoning behind banning foreign contributions is not bound necessarily by the First Amendment, which which has been interpreted to state that like money equals speech. And therefore, we have these very uh, limited rules on how we can restrict those those kind of contributions. But the constitutional interpretation of foreign government involvement has to do with basically the sovereignty of the country instead of just the First Amendment. So oh, wow. it, it's it, it's a much broader scope, and the laws have been expanded. They were expanded, uh, banning foreign intervention in elections, uh, campaign finance law, that is, uh, under the McCain-Feingold Campaign Finance Reform Act. And this was included because uh, Bill Clinton was found to have taken these illegal campaign contributions from Chinese officials in 1996. And so Republicans were mad and up in arms. How dare the president collude with foreign officials and take campaign contributions from them? Oh, dear. And so this, uh, you know, wound up getting the, the laws around foreign involvement via a campaign got tightened to basically say that, you know, you, you basically can't provide any substantial assistance to a foreign person, foreign corporation, foreign government now, to we're get not involved g- in an election. We're not going to sit around... And wait for the Federal Election Commission to, like, fine the Trump campaign. This is something that gets funneled directly into the ongoing criminal investigation. Yeah, this will go into the the Mueller investigation. Uh, And and Sharish, where are we at with that? This seems like something that's going to take forever. Well, there's forever and then there's forever, right? Sometimes we talk about forever in the sense that it's never going to happen. I don't think it's never going to happen. I think it's going to happen. I I don't know if it'll be this year. I don't know if it'll be next year. If the Republicans in Congress are smart better sooner than later, I think the last thing they want is for this to come out and be done probably summer of next year just as they head into the elections. But, you know, he's assembled a pretty serious team of prosecutors up in New York and uh, from New York. And I, I don't know whether that says everything, but I don't think you do that if there's nothing 
going on. So uh, as Paul mentioned, there are those laws. There's also laws that say you cannot encourage someone to commit a crime, right? That would be conspiracy. And if you're sitting there talking to the Russians and the Russians go and steal a bunch of emails and then post them on WikiLeaks, that technically is a crime. And so if you've helped foster that, um, there are some issues. There's also honest services fraud. There's also anti-briberies. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we haven't even talked about that may be in play at this point. Now, I thought the Don Jr. email represented a, a watershed moment in the in this controversy because there had always been the cover-up. The cover-up was – for the longest time, the clearest thing that had gone wrong. And nobody knew whether the Trump campaign had actually done something with Russians. But now we definitively do because Donald Trump Jr. himself released his own emails in which he explicitly colluded with or or attempted to collude with a Russian agent. Right. Well, just a footnote here. He released the emails because the New York Times was about to release them for him. I know that, but something about him releasing them on Twitter well, this, uh, right, right. to accelerate well, you know, and, no, and validate. He was just put, he was just trying to yeah, he got, spite he, the New York Times. He, he got, showed he, them, he didn't he? He got caught lying for the past year. You know, the guys called this a witch hunt, fake news, you know, everything about Russia is a lie. We had nothing to do with Russians. We don't know any Russians, et cetera, et cetera. And he was lying the whole time. So why would we believe anything that he says now? Uh after this, like he released the emails, we know what that is. What what else does he have? What He's, else did he do? He went on Sean Hannity later that day and said, "It's you know, it's no big deal." And and the line, "It's of, no big deal because there was nothing there." So but right, he, yeah. he went with the with the hope that they had plenty of stuff that he could use in this campaign. That's right. Let's unpack the defense of this, which I don't understand why they even bother making. But the defense is. Well, we got to this meeting to which uh, Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, and Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, had come along. Right. And we, this lady talked, and we had no idea what she was talking about. We weren't interested at all. So it was fake news. <laughs> Where, you know, intent is an important part of law. You were intending to get the stuff he, from, he really, from really Russian wanted it. Yeah. And the, the lawyer, Natalia Vesenotskaya, said in her interviews that, you know, he seemed to really, really want this information. He wanted dirt on Hillary Clinton desperately. He didn't care where he got it from. He didn't care that, you know, this was coming from the general prosecutor's office in Moscow, that like that literally the Russian government was sending a, a, some some. Uh, lawyer to deliver this whoever like whatever her connection to that government is she's transferring some kind of information now a couple things contemporaneously to this email donald trump uh, the presidential candidate at the time said that he was going to deliver a major speech with dirt on hillary clinton in the coming weeks which he wound up not doing right do you think it's plausible that uh Don Jr. had told his dad, look, I got this sweet Russian meeting coming up that will give us the dirt. Okay. Well, number one, as Paul mentioned, it wasn't just Donald Trump Jr. in that meeting, or maybe you did, Arthur. It was also the campaign chairman. It was also Jared Kushner, who's now a senior White House official. Is it plausible that they didn't tell him what had happened in this meeting? I find that ridiculous that you have these three people, including the guy who's running the campaign, take this meeting about Russia – and then say, ah, 
let's not say anything to the you know to the boss because it was nothing. Well, now that is what the White House has claimed. They have claimed many things, yeah. including the size of their inauguration crowd. So and, I think we can move past. Yeah, I mean, if, and if we just look closely at that email, we'll see that. You know, the way that Rob Goldstone, the guy who's sort of making this introduction, talks about it, it, about like, oh, you know, it's this is just Russia trying to help your dad's campaign. You know, like we've talked about this before. <laughs> That's how it sounds. So, And Donald Trump is like, oh, of course. Yeah, I love it. Sure. Now, this is it, not- it's, it's clearly that this is I don't think that this was the first time that they talked about this. And Rob Goldstone also says. You know, hey, should I go to Rona, who is sort of the back channel to Donald Trump through the Trump organization? That's how you get information to Donald Trump is through Rona. He said, I wanted to tell you first. Yeah. And he was like, should I go to Rona? And it's sort of like, well, maybe they've been talking about this a lot before this. This was obviously a pretty clumsy, you know, ham handed kind of thing. But if you speak to folks who are familiar with uh, Russian intelligence and how they work, this is what they do. They didn't really mean to give him any real information here. What they wanted to do was set this up so eventually it's found and looks bad. It looks bad for Donald Trump now. And look at it this way. I mean, maybe the maybe the Russians had no plausible expectation that Donald Trump would actually win. But now that he has, look what's happened. I mean, we have broken our alliances with Western Europe. Uh, the country's at a standstill because all we talk about is Russia. The Russians have gotten what they wanted. I mean, they basically weakened the United States in many ways, and most particularly in the Western alliance, which uh, uh, the Germans and the French say they can't count on us. That's a little confusing. Because, so so if, if that's what they did, they intentionally created compromat, which is what they call it. They're, they're creating a, like a chaotic situation. That's what they wanted. They, they wanted, wanted a chaotic – because I was going to say, I thought they wanted Donald Trump to be president, so – would they then – did they only want him to become president because it would be nonstop chaos? And they may have they also could, thought that Hillary Clinton would have won and then she'd have to deal with all right. these emails and all this bad – you know, the, the, the bad news out of that and she would be compromised and everybody – I think that they just wanted to fuck with America. Because if, because if it had turned out that her opponent's campaign, if the government pursued all these crimes, it would look like a political exactly. witch hunt. <laughs> right. All right. Let's leave it there. Paul Blumenthal, SV Date, thank you for coming and talking to us about the latest in the greatest witch hunt. My of pleasure, all time. Arthur. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We'll be right back.
We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by someone you may remember. His name is Zach Carter. Whoa. HuffPost reporter and future book author. His book is about the band 311. No, it's not. We're also honored to be joined in studio by Mike Konzel, a fellow with the Roosevelt Institute. And this is one of those uh, really smart think tank sorts of places. Thanks for having me on. I've been a big fan of the whole crew here, so I'm excited to be on. So we've needed you to come on to help us with uh, some complicated stuff relating to the banks, of which you are very knowledgeable. Now, this week, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a new creation of the Obama era to protect consumers from bad uh, bad financial products that can blow up and melt your house down. It issued a rule, a really important rule, that is supposed to make it easier for people to sue their credit cards when they get ripped off. Wait, wait a minute. You couldn't sue your credit card if they ripped you off? You could not, uh, almost certainly could not uh, sue on virtually all financial products. And we're going to talk about the arbitration rule. And it's a cool rule in and of itself. But I think it also is really interesting for political economic reasons, which uh, I'm excited to talk to Zach about. And also it's just a template for how things need to go going forward. So for virtually every single financial product you interact with, your checking account, uh, your savings account, your credit card, um, everything except a home mortgage, which was exempted by legislation, somewhere on page five or six of your 30 or 40 page agreement was a little footnote that said, we reserve the right to move things to arbitration to handle disputes or something language like that. Something you would never catch. This is something like buried in a giant long form that you would just scroll down as fast as you can and click yes. But yes. What is Because you can't not click yes. What is arbitration? Uh, arbitration. So, and and that what that did essentially was that if you had a complaint with your bank, the bank had the um, ability to not allow you to go to court, but instead force you to go into what's called an arbitration. But basically, something a non-court, non-legal, non-public setting where they would set up a lawyer to listen to your side, listen to the bank side, and make a binding ruling on you within a setting that was created by the person so, who you're an opponent. So it's like the the bank so you can't sue your bank. What your bank can do is make you go to a judge Judy for banks that's not even on TV. Right, right. And it's just a bunch of lawyers. No robes. No robes. For, uh, yeah, no robes. <laughs> dudes in suits who actually work for the bank. Yes, or people who certainly are hired by the banks and they want to be rehired and they're probably chummy with them and they're on this kind of, you know, close circuit. Well can't you go to small claims court? Um, so the arbitration would essentially block you from that. They say that banks essentially have the ability to force you into arbitration, right? And it's, so the, the big phrase is mandatory arbitration, right? Oh. And the, the key thing there is the mandatory part. And the banks banks could let you go to court, but they probably almost never do and they haven't historically. And um, two big things happened in the last couple of years that I think um, were relevant in making this a bigger thing. One is uh, a lot of people, um, Huffington Post, but also uh, New York Times ran a bunch of s- reporting that basically said, this is incredibly widespread, not just in finance, but also in for-profit schools, in nursing homes. Nursing homes is a big thing. Where, what? 
um, if if an elderly person um, who you know often has physical problems or or, or, or mental incapacitation. Um, you know, they rip them off. They steal money from them, essentially, and they treat them poorly. And but they're forced into arbitration instead into a court, right? Um, so these. What kinds about of- political fundraising? Can you can you force people into political f- who've been <laughs> defrauded by like the DCCC? So I can. Yeah, <laughs> well, Newt Gingrich can make all his people go to arbitration. <laughs> I don't know if it's that widespread, but certainly for everything every re- regular day consumers would face, it's incredibly widespread and a neat technicality. That I think really showed concretely the ability for abuse was when Wells Fargo was putting people into fake accounts. Those fake accounts had the mandatory arbitration, so, so people couldn't sue over the fake account. Wells you Fargo- signed up for an account that you didn't want, that you never asked for, <laughs> and you couldn't sue Wells Fargo for putting you into this account because they'd put on the form that you never signed a footnote saying you had to go to arbitration. Now, yeah, and, and and I think it was the original arbitration was binding too on it, but it was one of those things where it's like, wait, this is incredibly abusive, and they have a, they have their own safety hatch built into now, it. Now this is a little confusing. Uh, so start with the fact that Wells Fargo did this unbelievably shady thing to like two million of their customers, where they made an account for you that just like charged you fees, and it got uncovered. And there are news stories about Wells Fargo. Getting sued and offering settlements to the the customers. So, what is up with those? Like, is that not really happening? So, um, there, there's a bunch of different lawsuits happening, both at the LA County level, with some I think class action, but also the CFPB. The, the key thing that was I, I think relevant, kind of waking up for people, and and it wasn't clear how far Wells Fargo was willing to push this, but. You know, you signed up for the initial account and they created a fake account. And the initial account has mandatory arbitration and your fake account does. And between them, they're saying you're signed up for arbitration. You have to sit down with us in our setting. And, you know, I think between those things and, and a lot of other examples of really real, uh, of very serious abuses, there's finally a like we're fed up and we're going to do something about it moment. I mean, that's you, what the CFPB did. You have got to stop calling things Kafkaesque at this point. It is just it's just Wells Fargo. Right, right. Right, right. And it's like <laughs> Fargo-esque. Yeah. Fargo is kind of taken by something else, though, Yeah, in I, the popular I, culture. I guess it's different from being chopped up no, in a wood chipper. Nobody's shipper. read that Kafka book either, The Trial. What are you talking is, about? Everybody's read that book. Ah, it's a long book, man. <laughs> no, it's anyway, not. He gets stabbed at the end. Pretty sure. <laughs> well, that's a spoiler. <laughs> Crucially, he doesn't know where he has to go to get anything done, which right. is the kind of legal bureaucratic world that private power is exerting here. And I think this is really important because – you know, people have a sense of the way power works inside it, right? Like if you if you have been wronged, you can go to a court and you can go to a court of law and maybe it's – courts have their own problems, but you can get a lawyer and you can have – maybe you can, get, you know, gather together with That's other like people. That's like you're right. It's your right. Here, that power, that exertion of, of people being able to seek remedy and, and cures um, is essentially been privatized. And this is a big thing that a lot of people point out in this world is that the, the power is still being exerted. It's just now being – instead of by a public setting, it's now in a private corporate setting and corporations are claiming the right to be able to arbitrate this stuff instead of a judge. So that's it's, not dystopian at all. It's totally – yeah. It's totally a mess and it's 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 a – you know, like we, we think about how corporations are like sucking up all the money and ripping people off. But it's, it's a deeper kind of corruption and deeper kind of power grab. Um, than just simply like screwing over their workers. And I think, you know, it's good to see the CFPB put a blanket rule saying you cannot do this. 
we'll talk a little bit about why that kind of approach is particularly important in a minute. But it's worth reflecting on that kind of political economy. Of it. I, so, I feel like we were talking about this a little bit uh, during during the debate over TPP. I mean, uh, I think TPP is. This is not why I think it collapsed. It collapsed because Donald Trump is president. But one of the things that, that liberal critics of of the, the trade deal were, were pointing to was the idea that there, there could be some sort of separate sort of non-democratically accountable justice system for uh, corporations who you know, have complaints against governments that, that ordinary people don't have. There's this sort of separate, you know, fancy legal system for, for fancy people, so uh, which corporations are. This they, brings they, us to this week, the CFPB intervened and and is their intervention going to be effective uh you know would it work on its own will republicans be able to kill it if they don't like it which obviously they don't sure so um you know we proposed a rule a year ago and a lot of people weren't sure if they were going to back off given the trump administration the hostility towards the cfpb in congress um but they went ahead and put it out which was absolutely they followed the, the letter of the law and they, they did it in a proper way and they still carried out, which is fantastic. And basically, it says you can't do this. You can't have mandatory arbitration. So it opens up the world to – so two things follow, right? One is – and I think this is important for the right-wing critics – is you can still do arbitration, right? Like banks can offer it and now they have to offer it on terms consumers might like or understand. They may have to work harder to say like actually we'll have impartial people or we'll make it very you know helpful to you or we'll promise you a minimum settlement. Or we'll give you a toaster. We'll give you a free toaster or whatever. So like it doesn't actually block arbitration for people who think that that's really great. Um, it blocks the mandatory part of it. And it's like anything that's a good idea. You don't need to lie to people or break their arms to force them into it, right? So if this is a good thing, which you hear a lot of conservatives say, well, it'll happen on its own. But it probably won't happen on its own because it's actually not a good thing. Uh, it also opens up the world for class action lawsuits, which is really important because, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you have a bad meal, you just like don't go back to the restaurant. But if your bank charges you 20 bucks, that's unfair um, and fraudulent, do you cancel your bank account? Uh, maybe, maybe not. No. No, you don't. No one does, right? You have it's to go to HR. Yeah. You have to go to HR and get all your check things changed. You have to redo all your accounts. It's a you total pain. You gotta reset your password. Reset your password. It's a total pain in the ass. And that stickiness, and especially if you don't think the other bank is any less likely to rip you off, right? If you, there's no one on the beat here. So um, that class action gives you people at least a little bit of edge to push back against really unfair practices. And the fact that it's a blanket ban, it's not a nudge, it's not a tax credit, it's not some way of saying, well, let's like try to maybe put the thumb on the scale slightly for consumers in this arbitrary and totally unfair way. It actually just says, don't do this anymore. When does it take effect? Uh, I believe it takes effect immediately. Um, so a couple things will happen. One is that um, the Republicans will try to repeal it under the Congressional Review Act. Which, which they've done like... 15 times already this mm -hmm. year, special parliamentary procedure. Yeah. So for any uh, – essentially for any recent regulation passed whenever a uh, presidential term switches, Congress with a simple majority in the Senate, so 50 votes, can yank regulations. Now, there's a timer running on it and the, uh, the Senate is obviously very busy trying to take away health care for millions of people and cut taxes for rich people. So they may be too busy for it. Um, it is a kind of tough vote. Uh, Lindsey Graham, for instance, has – pushed for this um, – push for mandatory arbitration to be removed for military people and veterans um, who are – Because <laughs> we should treat them better than everyone else? Um, well, I mean they're especially prone to abuse because they're often not around. They're deployed. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's always been this kind of like social democratic state around the military, which is a whole other conversation. Um, 
So that's one thing. The second is um, some of the regulators might try to force an overrule of it, which you can do with the CFPB, which is a technical and complicated process, which probably won't happen. Because the CFPB is partly like a consortium of other financial regulators? No, the CFPB is on its own, but um, because of a accountability mechanism, which was a, a bad idea, I think, in, at the beginning, um, two-thirds of regulators can overrule a rule by the CFPB if they meet a bunch of thresholds. Why, this why, probably won't happen. Why is the CFPB, during the Trump administration, finalizing a rule that Republicans hate? That's not happening with other agencies, I don't um, think. The CFPB is – I mean it, they do their job. They're, they were engineered – and I think it's really important to remember this and, and it's important to remember going forward for 2020 and beyond is you know, they were engineered to do their jobs well. Like it wasn't just that Elizabeth Warren and other consumer law professors and, and activists like thought consumers got a bad deal. They, they understood structurally how the regulatory environment was designed to screw over consumers. And so they have a dedicated watchdog with its own funding mechanism that's hard for the banks to screw with. So I think um, – and, and this rule has is desperately needed and also was in um, the process for a while. So I think all those things together show why they have the backbone right now. Also, the Republicans are I, – I don't think this is why, but the Republicans are so awful to the CFPB. It's not like there's even a give and take. So it's – you know, if, if someone – if they hate them so much, they might as well just do their job well and try to figure out if they can moderate to like kind of balance some things. And the CFPB itself will uh, fight against banks on behalf of consumers. They brag about having recovered billions of dollars for people who complained that a bank or credit card ripped them off. Yeah, and it's uh, it has a single mission, right? So you know, and and their single mission is not. You look at something like the OCC, another bank regulator. They're funded by the banks, um, so they're always a little friendly to them. And their their job is to kind of like hang out with the banks and work with them on their balance sheets. The CFPB is independently funded, which is incredibly important for its job. And it also has a dedicated mission to fight for consumers. So when Republicans want to go after the CFPB, they try to add these gimmicky missions to it, like help banks out too, which sounds silly, but it actually matters a lot for their for their mandate. And then also tries to screw with their funding, which would also weaken it quite a bit. It's remarkable back, uh, and we're going to talk about this some next week when we have you back on, uh, but when when they did Dodd Frank, you know there was a regulatory review by the bank regulators by Hank Paulson, who's the Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush. And one of the the big ideas from that review was, you know what these regulators they don't actually really like dealing with consumer protection. Because back before the CFPB existed, we had like five different bank regulators who were supposed to look at a billion different things, including consumer protection, and they knew they didn't do a good job with consumer protection. So Republicans actually under George W. Bush recommended creating a separate agency that only did consumer protection. And now they have it, and it's good, and the Republicans don't like it because they would rather it be easy for banks to steal from you. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether they manage to kill this new rule using the same process that they have already used many, many times during the Trump administration to successfully kill uh, late Obama-era rules. Mike Konzel from the Roosevelt Institute, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me on. Zach Carter, thank you for coming in. It's been so special, Arthur. All right, we'll be right back. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by my colleague Jessica Schulberg. Hello. And Ryan Riley. Hey. 
And Jessica is a, a foreign policy correspondent. Ryan, you do justice. You both this week covered the new FBI guy. Because remember, everyone, Trump fired the previous FBI guy because he was investigating Trump. Yeah. So it's a really unique situation. And there was a, a confirmation hearing for a man named Christopher Ray. Who is Chris Ray? Chris Ray is someone uh, who was at a pretty high level within the uh, the Bush administration, um, and actually, you know, worked pretty closely with with James Comey, and had during his hearing yesterday had a lot of nice things to say about Comey. Um, and was sort of in this sort of awkward spot, right? Because he's been nominated by uh, by Trump. Um, you know, this is sort of speculation, but he doesn't strike you as sort of the Republican who was on the Trump train early on. Um, I think that this was, you know, probably someone who either yeah, who knows how he voted, right? But you know, it, he didn't seem like a big, you know, initial initial Trump guy. This is a pretty middle of the road sort of like Republican. Um, now he is a career Republican. Yeah. FBI guy. So DOJ guy. DOJ guy. DOJ guy. Pardon me. The the FBI is part of the Justice Department. Correct. So was he in the Justice Department at the time of his nomination? No. No. He was in private practice. He was in Justice Department last under President Bush as the Assistant Attorney General for Criminal Division. Correct. When Comey was the Assistant Attorney General, I believe. He was the Deputy Attorney Deputy General. Deputy Attorney General. So he's leaving some rich job. Yeah, he was this. at a private law firm. He actually represented Chris Christie during Bridgegate. And there is, I think, some speculation that he might be a running mate, a possible running mate for Christie that obviously never materialized. So he's such a good lawyer that he kept Chris Christie <laughs> in the governor's mansion, <laughs> even after Chris Christie's office engineered the deliberate traffic jam. The guy knows what he's Lee. doing. And I believe <laughs> held on to Chris Christie's cell phone. I yeah, mean, that the was the, he would never confirm it, but that, that was the rumor was that. No one could get a hold of Chris Christie's cell phone because Chris Ray had it on lockdown. He's leaving. Oh a, wow! Yeah, <laughs> he's leaving a pretty uh, plumb position too. I mean, since the, I think his disclosure said that since the beginning of uh, 2016, since January 2016, so you know, year and a half, he's taken in 9.2 million dollars. So doing pretty well for himself. So at first, I, it sounds like this is a really awkward job to take. Uh, but when I was thinking about it a little more and reading your coverage, it seems like. He's actually in a, a pretty strong position. You know, the fact that the, the Trump administration chose him suggested that they didn't want to create more of a headache for themselves on this particular front, the FBI. Well, the other thing that's different than for Comey is Comey was actually in charge of investigating this Russia probe, and the Russia probe is potentially very damaging for Trump. So he was in this really awkward situation where Trump is pledging for asking for pledges for his loyalty and asking him to look away at certain things like Mike Flynn. Um, after Trump fired James Comey, the special counsel Rob Mueller was brought in. And that means that Chris Ray, if confirmed, will sort of take a backseat to Mueller in the Russia probe. Um, during the confirmation hearing, he was asked if he'd had any discussions with the White House about the decision to fire James Comey. And he says, no. In fact, the, the closest thing I can think of is that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein called me after after I was nominated and said, hey, you know, like, Rob Mueller's taking over this. Like, it, it, it'll kind of take some stress off of your back. Oh, wow. So this is potentially not such a bad Ryan, what do you think that uh, this shows about Trump, that this is the guy he went with? Um, 
I mean, I think this was – he probably had no clue who Christopher Ray was. Maybe he uh, – Of course not. <laughs> but, you know, what even the Trump process, which is very chaotic. Yes. Uh, some, this doesn't seem like a, a crazy Trump decision. It does not. This seems like a more of a traditional – he was something, someone that you – you know, had there been a um, – legitimate it's not the word had there been a no had there been well had there been an opening at the fbi that came about in a different circumstance and trump was president um or any republican was president rather i think this is someone who would be on the short list and a potential nominee it's not this is someone that you could imagine a different um candidate um a different republican president nominating essentially um i mean the big question is it was a sort of an unusual hearing because you had a situation where Essentially, the uh, incoming FBI director is being questioned about whether he had given a pledge of loyalty um, to the president of the United States and had to reassure members of Congress that, no, his loyalty was with the Constitution, with the FBI. Um, That was sort of unusual. I don't think that you would have that in a normal situation because of the unique circumstances of what uh, Comey has said that Trump did and what Trump has admitted he did himself. Yeah, that's weird, but that's an easy answer. Sure. Like, right. Yeah, no, I didn't sign a loyalty pledge right. to Donald Trump. But just Trump. the fact that that's the issue that sort of dominates the discussion. He had that in his opening prepared marks. <laughs> right. Just so you guys know, my loyalty is to the Constitution <laughs> and the law. And then even so, every lawmaker has to have their soundbite of, do you swear that you've pledged no loyalty to President Donald Trump? You know, And so just the fact that that monopolized so much of the hearing's time is sort of ridiculous. I mean, they touched on other issues. He was at the Justice Department in the Bush administration when the Justice Department signed off on the so-called torture memos, which authorized the use of, quote-unquote, enhanced interrogation techniques. Uh, Diane Feinstein did grill him a bit on that, saying, you know, what was your role in approving that? He says, I had no role. I never reviewed the memos. I think torture is illegal. Uh, Leahy pressed him on it. He said, I think waterboarding is illegal. I would not sign off on that. Um, but I think in a normal hearing, you would have seen a lot more attention on those types of issues and his positions on things that he was involved in in his career versus, you know, tell us that you're not going to pledge loyalty to the president of the <laughs> United States. That's interesting about torture, but an FBI director isn't crafting torture policy for an administration. They're not crafting, but I mean, the FBI is involved in interrogations. You would definitely want to know your FBI director's stance on using coercion to get information out of suspected criminals. That's a good point. Donald Trump, a very enthusiastic fan of torture. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> it seems like Defense Secretary James Mattis talked him out of it, said, to just, every last just, spoke just give me a oh, cigarette and we're good. <laughs> yeah, so he, he doesn't like torture after he talks to James Mattis, but I would suspect he'd revert to the mean I suspect he's one. had some back and forth on that one. So and, the, it doesn't sound like there's much obstacle to Chris Ray getting nominated. No, I think as Ryan sort of alluded to, uh, even people who might not be enthusiastic fans of him are sort of thinking, thank God it's this guy. You know, he's saying he has a respectable career. He's well-liked. He's not Frank Gaffney. (laughs) We could have gotten a lot crazier. And if you look at the list of, um, you know, former U.S. attorneys who supported him, it's some sort of surprising names on there. You have Sally Yates, uh, who, of course, infamously was fired by uh, the president of the United States when she was uh, acting uh, attorney general. And you have uh, former attorney general Eric Holder. I mean, these are not, uh, I mean, these are, you know, Democrats. I mean, these are people who went up and said, yeah, like, this guy's a good guy. Ryan's bringing that up because Eric Holder retweeted him last night. It's true. Eric Holder did retweet me. I didn't even add him. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> so it, you said something earlier that I thought sounded important. Does the fact that the Trump administration picked a normal dude suggest to you that they have learned something about how to handle 
their massive problem with uh, you know, looking really corrupt? I think it indicates that maybe the uh, the working apparatus of the administration learned something. It's tough to say whether Trump learned anything. I I have to imagine he's uh, not, that was a dumb. Of course, right. you didn't learn. <laughs> I mean, I have to imagine that. I you know obviously he's a seventy one year old guy that's been said a lot that he probably doesn't change. But you have to imagine after this that he's probably after all this attention that he's going to realize okay maybe I don't call up the FBI director directly um, and he. Ray said that you know the entire process that there wasn't anything sort you know the loyalty oath there wasn't anything sort of abnormal or strange during the process necessarily. So I think you know I it's it's who's to say I think you would lean towards Trump re- recognizing at this point that hey uh, there's this you know DOJ policy in place and it's weird and you can't call up the FBI director and ask him to have dinner with you alone at the White House. But I think if we're trying to extrapolate that this shows that Trump learned some great lessons about norms and you know separation and independence of the FBI, I think that's kind of overstating it. I think he can only take so much shit coming at him at once and decided that this was an area that maybe he could afford to back off of for a little bit. Jessica, you covered another story on the Trump crime front this week, which was this Russian lawyer who is apparently uh, or, you know, possibly bringing opposition research on Hillary Clinton from the Russian government to Donald Trump Jr. There's actually a policy question that was in the Russian government's interest that she wanted to talk about. Right. So the Russian lawyer's name is Natalia Veselnitskaya. We're going to call her Natalia from now on, so I don't have to struggle through her last name again. Um, She is not exactly a Russian government lawyer. She doesn't, as far as we know, she doesn't publicly work for the government. Um, She's a private lawyer. The reason that she was able to set up this meeting is because she's worked for a prominent real estate figure in Russia named Aras Agalarov. Aras's son is named Amin, and he is friends with Rob Goldstone, who is friends with Donald Trump. So through a series of connections, she asked for this meeting. Um, The lawyers who helped set this up claim that she asked for the meeting strictly to talk about a law called the Magnitsky Act, which is sanctions against human rights abusers in Russia. It was named after a man who died in jail in Russia, allegedly after uncovering this big tax fraud scheme that the Russian government was behind. Um, so she's been sort of this this figure in the U.S. coming back and forth to lobby against these sanctions, which are wildly popular on the Hill. I mean, you have everything from super progressives to super hawks on the Hill getting behind these sanctions. And so even if there wasn't any type of compromising information on Hillary Clinton being promised, it is sort of unusual to see a campaign, several campaign aides meeting with a foreign national to debate turning back sanction, U.S. sanctions policy. It really sounds like a person who was carrying water for Vladimir Putin, who reportedly hated the Maginsky Act. Putin did really hate the Magnitsky Act. A lot of his kind of close friends and oligarchs were 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 listed as the, the people who were being targeted under this act. He had called it a complete breakdown of reason on behalf of the Americans, said that it would deteriorate U.S.-Russia relations. He banned Americans from adopting Russian children in retaliation, which always seemed like a strange move to me. Um, But yeah, this was an issue that was very, very, very personal for the Russians. All right, Jessica Schulberg, thanks so much for coming in. Ryan Riley, a real pleasure to have you both here. We'll be right back.
So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week, we were joined by Roosevelt Institute fellow Mike Konzel, as well as HuffPost reporters S.V. Date, Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, Jessica Schulberg, and Ryan Riley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Don't be shy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.